Hi there, and welcome to Live from the Cyber Institute. In this podcast, we listen in on conversations taking place among ministers, church leaders, and scholars as we engage the issues facing Christians and church leaders today. We hope that this episode is thought-provoking and a blessing to you, because as with everything we do in the Cyber Institute, our mission is to equip church leaders and help churches thrive. After you listen, make sure to follow our podcast so that you get all the latest episodes from your podcast platform of choice. Let's get started. Well, good afternoon or whatever time it is that you are choosing to join us and listening um, to our Cyber podcast. My name is Shelby Coble, and I am the research associate with the Cyber Institute uh, officing out of Abilene. So I reside here and get to be within the Bible building at ACU, and that is how I've been introduced to Dr. Chris Flanders. Uh, He is a professor of missions in the Graduate School of Theology here at ACU, and before that, spent 11 years in Thailand working to establish churches and plant several new churches as well. And he is on the leadership team of the Honor Shame Network and has been a part of several publications. More recently, he co-edited Honor Shame and the Gospel, Reframing Our Message and Ministry. And his wife um, works in the ACU Counseling Center. So we're grateful to have Chris join us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. And the reason that I wanted to have this conversation with Chris today is because he's actually joined Cybert for several events over this past year. We had you come and speak at Elderlink and then for one of our intersection webinars, both on this topic that we will continue to explore today, and that is honor and shame. And if you've not watched the conversation specifically uh, intersection with Carson Reed and Randy Harris, I encourage you to go to our cyber website and listen to that because they give more of an introduction to this topic and how it can play out in churches. And I wanted us to, in our time together, dive a little bit more deeply into how honor and shame impacts our American church culture and the context that I think ministry leaders need to be aware of as they recognize that this is a dynamic, even if it's not addressed. To begin our conversation, especially for those of our listeners who maybe don't know what honor and shame means, how would you define honor and shame? Hmm. Well, as I tell my students, definitions are so important. And uh, the, the challenge here is that both the experiences or the dynamics of honor and shame are, are quite complex. So they don't easily admit to or, or uh, they kind of resist simple, concise definitions, but let's let's do our best. Uh, let's start with honor. Honor is ultimately a, a type of um, formal evaluative dynamic. It is about approval, mm-hmm. honor. Um, you can gain approval from your own self. Like I mowed my lawn last night. Uh, it was in need of serious mowing. And after an hour and a half, when I was done, I sat down in my backyard with a big cup of ice water and I looked at my work and I thought to myself, mm, great job. Job well done. Look, job well done. Um, the, the scholars will tell us that what I did was a, a form of self-honorification. 
um, I, I felt good about this excellent, excellent in air quotes, work. Uh, I gave myself approval. It was me. It wasn't an audience other than myself. But there are other forms of honor that are more tied to society. Distinctions, um, awards, recognitions, um, different kinds of affirmation. These all connect with honor. So ultimately, honor trades on some definition of what is the good or what is excellent or what is outstanding. And to the extent that we achieve those, we might get recognition or cred of some kind. So uh, again, anything from applause, I just clap my hands, to addressing people with their title, Dr. Chris Flanders, you already engaged in honorification. Uh, and you did a nice job of highlighting some of the things that I've done. So you were, in a sense, uh, in your introduction of me actually engaging in complex practices of honorification. Um, we could go on about that. But <clears throat> uh, shame is um, an emotion, generally, though there is a social component that often accompanies shaming. Um, shame is a sim simply uh, a level of discomfort that we feel when we fail to attain some standard. Uh, so we might call it falling short or not being enough. Or it, it could be in a kind of transgression. It could involve things in our theological vocabulary we would call sin. Mm -hmm. And if we view those things as primarily not meeting some level of expectation either we had for ourselves or others, including God, had for us, we may very well experience shame. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it, Th uh, Thomas Aquinas, the well-known famous uh, medieval theologian said that shame is a recoiling from what is dishonorable and disgra uh, disgraceful. Um, so uh, it, is, uh, it is a move away from what we recognize to be honor and honorable. So shame and honor are often in complex ways kind of mutually tied together. It sounds like they are. And in light of the definitions that you've given, why does honor and shame matter within a ministry context? Why should church leaders be aware that not only these what these definitions are, but why are they important for church leaders? Right. Well, um, to answer that question, let me indulge me in just a little bit of background because the conversations that I've been engaged in as a missiologist and a missions professor uh, date several decades, and they have... Um, occurred primarily among those who are working in majority world cultures. So in Southeast Asia, where I was, or in the Middle East, or in North Asia, China, Japan, Korea, these places that some have, I think erroneously, we'll probably not get into that in this podcast, labeled honor shame cultures, because I'm convinced, um, and one of my agenda uh, in agendas in uh, publication is to help deconstruct this notion that there are these discrete honor-shame cultures and then we are something else, which really masks the honor-shame dynamics that exist in our own culture. So I think it's an unhelpful way of categorizing cultures. Um, but that conversation started primarily with people who were working in really different cultures, cultures that did honor and shame very differently than they did at home. That has only now begun to leak over, at least in the theological literature and the, and the pastoral ministry literature, 
into our North American context or our English-speaking context because it was kind of thought that that was the possession of those cultures over there. Right? It doesn't have to do with us. Yeah, it's not really our problem. Uh, we are a, uh, ostensibly we're a guilt culture, a guilt innocence culture. And so we don't really pay that much attention to honor shame. Now, several people would say uh, that maybe a hundred years ago we were. So if you insulted my wife, then I felt obligated to defend her honor. Maybe I challenged you to a pistol duel, right? I mean, those things literally happened in our own context. We know some of those famous ones. The reality is that these dynamics of honor and shame have never left. They've always been here. And when we don't pay attention to important dynamics that are both personal, psychological, as well as social, then, um, then they get ignored. And when they get ignored, they can often get distorted or they can become uh, rancid. In, in, in other words, they can become poisonous and ruinous to both individuals as well as communities. So I think that it's critical that we in the non-majority world, the, we might call ourselves the West, but uh, specifically North America, um, churches need to pay attention to these because one, They've always been around. They never really left us. We just didn't actually think about them. Uh, and two, scholars are suggesting that, particularly with the rise of social media, there's been a new heightened awareness of how powerful the shame experience and honor can shape us both for good and for ill. And that seems to be growing as an, a, a an area of attention among social psychologists and researchers. The other quick uh, answer to that question that you asked is, it's all over the Bible. <laughs> it's, it's impossible to read scripture closely without recognizing the strong honor valences and shame components that are, are just all over scripture. Uh, though sometimes translation um, issues will obscure these mm -hmm. or even add, complexify them in incorrect ways. We could talk about that. But our Bibles, uh, the cultures in which the word of God came both first to Israel and then to the church were profoundly influenced um, by these core values. And, uh, and so we should pay attention to them just to be able to read the Bible. That's very true. And as you mentioned, honor and shame shows up in several different ways. As I heard you speak uh, earlier at our previous events on this topic. The audience that I most specifically thought of were the groups of people that are less likely to attend church, the persons on the margins that we as church leaders and ministers want to invite in and make sure that they're a part of our congregations. So you mentioned social media as one thing um, that is obviously prevalent with our youth, with the younger generations. How does shame or shaming show up for this, these persons on the margin specifically? It's often the case, maybe not absolutely required, but it is often the case that groups that experience some form of marginalization also experience some form of either shaming or stigmatization. Stigma being 
a kind of institutionalized form of the shame experience. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's very true that individuals can resist these stigma or shame definitions that society, you know, in fact, you just think about any parent, right, who's raising a young, like a teenager. And I remember telling my, both my daughter and son this, that, hey, it doesn't matter what they think about you, right? Um, we tried to reframe that in terms of what does God think or what do we think or what do you think, but let's not, let's not really pay attention to popular opinion about this particular issue, whether it was, you know, dress or whether you went to something or you didn't. That is, that is the case um, broadly, but specifically for groups that in any way experience that position of, of being on the margins. It could have to do with economic status. In fact, the possibilities for creating marginal groups is is nearly endless, right? Mm -hmm. It could be economic, it could be social, it could be dress, it could be subcultures that that act a certain way. It could have to do with gender, it could have to do with sexual orientation, it could have to do with education. We could go on and on. So, in any church or congregation, there's a culture, right? I suspect that all of our listeners understand this well, that there are congregational cultures. And um, to the extent that the, the congregational cultures that we inhabit and, and, and live out put up um, difficult barriers for these, we could call them subcultures, or we could just call them uh, different demographics, to that extent, they, we may actually, probably unintentionally, create walls or barriers of shame. So you've probably heard, as I have, and I'm sure our listeners have too, either people actually say or it be reported to us of people saying about a congregation uh, things like, well, um, I, I'm, I can never go to that place, right? Or uh, those just aren't my kind of people. Mm-hmm. Um and sometimes that's just inevitable, right? You can't be all cultures to all people in, in, in infinite variety. But, um, but sometimes we do create these um, specific cultures where it's very clear that the message is you're probably not going to fit in here all the way to maybe even overtly, you're not welcome here. We know of, of, of times in our past where that's been the case. So I think, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a real issue, especially for the groups like you pointed to, uh, people who are on the, on the edge, maybe are open to faith, maybe are intrigued, and yet um, don't feel like that's a place for me. I, I'll just reference this one uh, point and then... Um, we can go on, but I consulted with a church in the Pacific Northwest several years ago, and they discovered in a one of the annual um, kind of church, actually, maybe they well, didn't do this annually, but they did a massive church study, and they realized that this demographic, which I think was the demographic of 25 to 34 years old, in their church of about three or 400 people, uh, the number of uh, members in that demographic was zero. And it shocked them because this was a church that decades ago had lots of people in that demographic. And so they tried to figure this out. And one of the cool things they did was they found a a group of people through friends, uh, people in the congregation 
um, who represented that demographic. And what they came away with in this, this kind of ethnographic study of focus groups was that this demographic, the people that they talked to, were never going to come to their church for all sorts of reasons. Mm. But, but it was this strong sense of, that it wasn't God. It wasn't disinterest in the gospel. It was social and cultural. And it was like, yeah, those, nope, never going to go to that place. Um, being aware of not being like them. So I think that's a huge thing uh, that marginalization is inherently shame producing for many people. And, uh, and, and we do that accidentally, I think. I hope. I hope so too. And in light of acknowledging that both honor and shame takes place within our churches, what encouragement or practical recommendations would you give ministry leaders as they attempt to assess how this plays out specifically in their context? Obviously, each congregation has its own DNA, but on a broader level, what are some ways if they want to inquire, how does this show up in my church or in my ministry context? Do you would you give them to begin with? Right. Well, um, so I often talk to my students, who many of whom are preparing to go and do intercultural ministry in other places, how to do a, a cultural audit or a cultural exegesis. And I think what you're asking here is, well, how would you do that in a congregation? Um, other than just take one of my classes, which I think isn't a practical solution for most people, or read my books. Um, well, uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to, to try and understand uh, whether you, you, a whole church, or a subgroup within a church, like a particular ministry, like the youth ministry, or a college ministry, or the young adults ministry, um, admit to this kind of uh, phenomenon that we've been talking about. Um, you know, one of the things that you do in any culture to understand the honor codes, and th this is one of the things that we're really talking about here, is that honor trades upon certain codes. Yep. What's excellent? What's good? And so you ask those questions. Um, you put on your amateur anthropologist hat or glasses, and you kind of go into this foreign culture, at least as much as you can, and you start to ask questions. You can do it individually. You can do it in focus groups. Um, to some extent, you can probably just do it because, especially if you're a youth minister, for example, you might have a, your thumb on the pulse beat of, of that subculture. But to ask the question, what, what does this group consider excellent and, and awesome? That term awesome is really perhaps one of the better terms to use to help people diagnose. So what is awesome in this group? What are we, and, and pay attention to, um, to both uh, our practices and especially our rituals of honorification. Now that's a complex term, but essentially what that means is what do we uh, what do we elevate and praise publicly? Who who gets the shout outs? Who gets access to things? Who um, who gets praised? Right? Who who gets uh, resources? Who you know? Who gets the keys to the van that maybe shouldn't have the keys of the van or the keys to the building? In other words, who gets privileges? Uh, and ultimately, privileges and, and uh, goodies like that kind of tie into a sense of honor. Absolutely. Privilege and honor. Privilege and honor can often co-occur or kind of mutually co-construct each other. Um, 
So look at you know how you award, how you do recognition, um, but even the mundane sorts of things. Again, a good anthropologist will always pay attention to to the mundane because sometimes there's there's the real rich cultural information. So how do you greet? Greeting and introductions, as as you just engaged in a little bit ago, um, tell you a lot about these kinds of norms or, or standards of excellence in any subculture, and ultimately then what gets honored. Um, but what about banquets or what about specific events that are ritualized in ways that uh, might, you know, graduation or forms of recognition? Who do we clap for? When do we clap? Those kinds of things. On the shame side, um, so generally we don't have rituals of shaming. We used to. In fact, I just heard, I just heard the account of someone who, when they were very, very young, actually, because of uh, their poor performance in class, wore a dunce cap in class. Um, now, this was outlawed in the 20s in the United States, but this person was talking about their experience in another country, and it was a dunce cap because they were not performing well, and it was, and it was, they sat in the corner, turned the other way, and they were publicly called out. So, but generally, we don't do that in youth ministries. At least, at least I don't think we do much. Um, so how do you get a, how do you get at shame and, and and the culture of shame? Well, you look at um, synonyms. One of the great exercises I do in my classes is I just have I explain the notion of shame and then I just have people brainstorm what are all the different terms, phrases, um, especially slang that have a, a shame dimension to it. Like so, listeners can't see what I'm doing right now, but I just put. An L on his forehead. An L on my forehead, right? Which which means loser. Um, I don't know if that still has cultural significance for 2023 or not. Um, but there was a popular song not too long ago that you know had that reference. And um, what are those things that we do and say that connote or denote, you know, sort of disapproval because you're not good enough. And, and develop a taxonomy, essentially, you know, develop lists of terms and then get people talking together because this is where it gets rich. So you construct a list. OK, that's nice. Um, and then you get people to actually. So when have you ever felt like that or when have you ever done that to another person? And let's talk about that. And you get people to discuss the experiences of shame or uh, shamefulness. Um, and being ashamed, being embarrassed. Um, and, and so that can lead to, uh, again, uh, some really rich cultural information. The other thing is to look, as we talked about earlier, is to look around and ask the question, who is not at the table? Who, who isn't question. here? Um, and why? Mm -hmm. And what if they showed up? How would they feel? How would they feel? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and why? And... Um, that also then the inverse question of, well, so who is here? And, and so who, who is at the center of, you might call it power or um, access to, to the resource of honor and, and, and prestige. Um, it, it's really interesting as, as I'm sure you're well aware, but uh, one of the things that Jesus does over and over and over again is he, he collapses the margins. Now he doesn't, in an unqualified way, approve of everything that everyone on the margins does, 
But in terms of bringing them into the table, right, in the conversation, um, inviting them into the kingdom of God on equal terms as anybody else, Jesus got a lot of his pushback socially from his contemporaries precisely because he honored groups that had been shamed, right? And by that shaming, been pushed to the margins, whether it was prostitutes or, air quote, sinners, right, of various kinds, tax collectors, um, women, that he collapsed those margins and took what was at the periphery and brought that to the center and then engaged them with dignity and honor. And so I think that that exercise can be a really helpful, shine a helpful spotlight on our subcultures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether we're talking about youth or young adults or college or, or the congregation as a whole, um, we all do these things. It's, it's inevitable. So th the question is not, are we going to do honor or not? The question is, are we going to be critically reflective of how we do this? And, uh, if the anthropologists are right, and I think they are, <laughs> that whenever we create honor codes and practices of honorification, which we have to do, right? We, we actually can't construct cultures or subcultures without doing. It's not going away. <laughs> well, it's not going away unless we're going to stop being social. And even then it would still be there. We just wouldn't be communicating to one another. But as soon as you engage or ratify or approve of some level of some, this is good right? Then you have automatically created the opposite category. So if this is excellent, then not being that is not excellent, which creates the potential for shame. So even if we were to think of it as um, maybe something that's really health, healthy, like uh, what is awesome in our world or our context is paying close attention to the people who have no voice. Okay, great. What we've what we've done is we've now created a category of for those who do not pay attention to the to the voiceless that is now shameful right that is now no longer recognized as awesome and honorable we're, we're going to call that shameful um, because we're elevating this other type of practice so you, you can't get away from it right so if you can't get away from it uh what are ways to make this a healthier environment within our church context for which shame and honor exist? Great question. Um, because just to go back to that earlier short mention of the, uh, the honor shame cultures out there, because one of the negative effects of parsing the world like that is that we then don't have to really think hard about the fact that we're actually doing these things. But if we realize that we're all honor and shame creatures, and particularly in, in, in forms of sociality like churches, um, then we all do it. And so let's, let's think about it. So how, how, do we, how do we engage that? So one of the things that we learn from the New Testament, and really from Israel too, but particularly from the, Old, the New Testament, and this is true at a broader cultural level um, that I talk about in, in my culture uh, learning courses, um, the early Christians often <clears throat> simply embraced some cultural form or value that was out there. And, and they looked it over through the lens of Jesus and said, okay, that thing is great. We're going to keep that, right? 
So the early church spoke Greek. Let's just go with something really obvious. Or many, many of the early churches spoke Greek. Um, and uh, they didn't see a problem with retaining the Greek language. They didn't re reject it as some horrible, non-Christian cultural thing. Um, and if you read the, the New Testament letters, you know, Paul engages or at least writes using certain rhetorical forms that come straight out of Greek Roman rhetoric. And he uses those. Great. So we'll approve that. We'll say that's, that's fine. That's good. But there are a lot of things that the early church rejected, right? So you have on the one hand, just, okay, we'll accept that. That's good. We don't need to change that. Um, the Holy Kiss, for example, would be an early practice that Christians apparently just embraced uh, because it was going on before they were believers in Christ. Now they're believers in Christ. Now they just do it in the name of Christ, right? But they still do the same sort of thing. But there are other things that the early church rejected. So you've got acceptance, you've got rejection, and then you've got the difficult middle, which is either modification. That thing mm, isn't unredeemable, but needs some correction, needs some work, needs some polishing. It needs, you know, and, and so we're going to add some change to it. It's going to be recognizable as this thing that existed before. However, we're going to sort of inject a little bit of change in Christian difference. Um, the more extreme version of that we typically call subversion, right? We take that thing, but we, re we gut it and we maybe even flip the meaning completely. Um, so it's not just modification, it's a kind of subversion. And I think that this is what we need to do when we think about honor and shame. But we can't do that until we actually know what we do and how we practice these things. So that's the critical first step. But once we do that, then uh, we, we need to begin this, what I would call um, a theologizing process. That is taking um, both stories from scripture and also our theological commitments and engaging these different practices and asking these questions. Is this keep a keeper or is this, you know, my dad's a fisherman and he goes fishing and he comes back with you know, a handful of fish, but he's caught like three times the number of fish that he actually brings back. They're not keepers, right? So we'll get rid of those things. We'll keep these things. Uh, and then what about these other things? Um, do they need some shifting and, and, polishing, you know, shining at the edges? Or um, do we re retain maybe the, the, the form or the language, but significantly gut it and, and re-institute re -inst it or infuse it with, with new meaning? And this is what the early church did, particularly in relation to honor and shame. Um, so the honor codes, Jesus flips the honor codes. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the Beatitudes are one primary set of taking you have heard, uh, but now I'm telling you, and kind of reinstituting new honor codes for the community of, of Jesus' followers, saying this used to be the way that people would applaud and say awesome, but now this is the way we're going to say awesome. And so this critical process, which isn't easy and doesn't occur in a quickly. weekend retreat, right? <laughs> you know, you're not going to you're not going to get your elders away for the weekend and come back. I mean, but but um, you can make progress, and um, and I think that there are really great resources out there that can help people uh, both understand the kinds of dynamics that were happening in the New Testament in particular, but also um, kind of set the stage for 
a critical engagement in the contemporary set situations we find ourselves. I appreciate that. And as you said, this isn't happening quickly, but yet this is a reality that we find ourselves in. And again, if I mentioned it earlier, I would encourage you to go back and listen to y'all's intersection because you talk about shame resilience and mm-hmm. some more pastoral practices that we don't have time for today, but are hit on in that um, webinar. As we kind of wrap up our conversation today on such a large topic, is there anything else that you would want our listeners to know about this topic of honor and shame or how it applies to them as church leaders or ministry leaders? I think there are several things. You just mentioned one of them. Uh, uh, A friend of mine who I co-edited this book that you just mentioned, uh, Werner Mischke, he wrote a book called The Global Gospel. And uh, in that book, he highlights two two ideas that I think are worth considering. Um, He looks at the New Testament and the gospel in particular, and what he draws out is one, the gospel is at its core about honor surplus. And he encourages people to live deeply into what he calls our our honor surplus. Uh, That really relates to this idea of um, God's truths about who we are. And, And I think that that's so key. Um, because the world and society has a way of warping those truths or tempting us to think other differently, right? Um, and so the practices that we can engage in that in powerful and consistent ways reconstitute our sense of identity and we sometimes say sense of worth. But all of these things connect importantly to notions of honor. Um, I, I'd never real or thought about this much, uh, if at all, until I went to Thailand, which is a monarchy, a constitutional monarchy, kind of like England, though their royals tend to be um, even more central to society than monarchy-obsessed England, right? Um, and the notion for new Thai believers when we were doing our work that the king of kings, right, the king who is above all the kings, from whom the notion kingship even, you know, has has its uh, existence, not only has adopted us as children of the king, I mean, the insanity of anybody who would think of actually being adopted by the royal family, it it would be mind-boggling. It just would blow people's minds. Um, They couldn't take it in. But that, that, that this king through his Holy Spirit, his own spirit now dwells both individually within us and as, as, a, as a community. And the sense, as I saw it um, before my own eyes, of just tangible expressions of, of what we would call pride, the, the good kind of pride, like the like the lawn thing that or when your child does something that's noteworthy and you put it on Facebook right and everybody's liking it and they're going that's amazing thank you oh that's so awesome and and you derive a sense of pleasure from that that we generally don't think is evil or wrong right it's just this sense of yeah that's so good and that's who we are and one of the major functions of new testament literature if some of the scholars that I read, particularly David De Silva, is to be believed, is to help churches 
not just articulate this, but really live into it. That's so important. So, you know, as, as uh, I think I said in the earlier, um, the recording, that when God says who I am, I need to believe him. But not just that, but then churches need to develop habits where this is communicated over it. You know, how, how often should you communicate your pleasure or your pride to your own children? You know, is, is once every five years good enough? And probably most of us would say, that's probably not often enough. Um, I think one of the things that we do as a community when we gather together is not just worship God, but also in, in very important ways, uh, reconstitute um, these, these notions of, of who we are. So the, the, we're building up that honor surplus. The other is what you mentioned, shame resilience. That is, I think, a term that may have been coined by Brene Brown, or she may have borrowed it from some of the social psychologists. But the idea that um, those things that may have formerly been to me shameful, uh, a matter of feeling ashamed or stigma, um, no longer lose their power and their luster. And uh, we just have to read a little bit in almost any New Testament letter to see this kind of thing happening. That authors are trying to communicate, you're no longer this, now you're this. And so developing in the community practices, vocabulary, rituals of speech, as well as other, other uh, habits that communicate explicitly to our people uh, this honor surplus and that we don't have to buy into the voices of shame that we've been hearing, whether it's our parents, you know, some people grow up in families that are broken and they derive a, a, sh- a shame-prone self from those experiences. Others, it's their peer groups or in places like Thailand where the dominant culture is kind of poised against um, Christianity as a minority religion. It's from your coworkers and society and so they need different, you know, different types of shame resilience. I think that's super important. I think another thing that I want to communicate to everybody, and uh, you can do some reading here and and kind of dig deeper into this. We often talk about guilt as a primary way of thinking about human divine relationship or relationality. I want to challenge all of our listeners. Um, the actual vocabulary of guilt in the New Testament is incredibly sparse. And in the Old Testament, pretty sparse too, but the, the vocabulary of shame is powerful. Um, but let's just grant there is guilt and, uh, and there are guilt experiences. One of the things that is important to understand in pastoral work is that the problem of guilt and the problem of shame are solved differently. Guilt essentially is solved by forgiveness or absolution. Neither guilt nor absolution solve shame. There was a book um, written several years ago, and the title is something like I should I should st- I should find the book uh, again and, and stop saying it's something like. But it's something like um, I know I'm forgiven, so why do I still feel so bad? Hmm. And I would say, and the book's uh, advice was, well, it's shame, and shame isn't solved by forgiveness. Shame is solved by a renewed self. And be, by being filled with uh, Christopher Lash, the social commentator called uh, 
sh uh, the, the self that we're talking about here, the shame self is the empty self. Mm. And so um, that emptiness needs to be filled with good stuff. And that's a pastoral move that, that we can do. Um, and then I just say, read scripture with those lenses of honor and shame. And that can help us maybe jumpstart the conversations in our own context wherever we are. I appreciate that. And I think that's what I would encourage our listeners is we want this to be the jumpstart of conversations with those that are in your context to start evaluating and noticing, paying attention to those things which are honoring or shameful and moving forward in the steps that you've outlined for us. So I want to thank you, Chris, for being with us today. And if people have questions or want to follow up with you, how how's best for them to connect with you? Well, I wish I was cool and hip and had a sub stack that they could go to. or uh, But uh, but they could email me. Um, my email is very easy, chris.flanders at acu.edu. I'm on Facebook. If you want to find me on Facebook, I do lots of communication via Facebook because I'm old and we old people do Facebook apparently. So I still do that. Um, those are two ways that you can do that. Wonderful. Well, thank you for those of you who've joined us today. And you can always access all of our podcast episodes at cyberinstitute.podbean.com. And we look forward for the next time that you join us. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening today to Live from the Cyber Institute. We would love to connect with you on our social media channels, and you can always find all of our various resources at our website, cyberinstitute.org. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on your platform of choice, then share it with your friends. Until next time, may God bless you in all that you do.